All right. Welcome back, podcast listeners, to another Therapist in Motion series brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. This is Andrew Walquist giving you a heads up on what's about to happen. I hope I'm going to blow your mind. Are you ready, Dan? I am ready. All right. Ankle bones connected to the knee bone. The knee bones connect to the hip bone. The hip bones connect to the backbone. Doing the skeleton dance. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. All right. Well, Andrew, we're excited to have you back. And um, for those of you who have been regular podcast listeners, you'll notice that Andrew was away for a period of time. And uh, with our new updated equipment, we're glad that we can have Andrew back in as he is live from Texas. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. I really appreciate this opportunity. I love, love education, and I'm super excited about today's topic. And in all reality, I wanted to blow your mind. I know I probably just blew your eardrums instead, but hopefully by the end of this, I want you to walk away with just some bigger appreciation on a topic I'm passionate about called regional interdependence. So generally, just so you can organize this in your mind, listeners, we're going to be going through what is it, number one. Number two, what do we know about it? And number three, how are we going to apply it? And we're specifically going to be talking more about regional interdependence of the thoracic spine and the upper quarter. So let's talk about regional interdependence, Dan. Can, what, what do you think about when you think of regional inter, interdependence? Do you have a good definition of it? Well, I'll give my best shot at what my best definition is. Uh, so regional interdependence is the interplay or interaction between one body segment and the other. Um, a major prime mover versus a not so major prime mover or the six degrees of freedom versus minimal degrees of freedom. If we talk about a kinetic chain. Nice. I really like some of the words that, that you threw in there, the interconnectedness, kinetic chain. A lot of that can be synonyms about what's going on, but the, but the very underlying principle is exactly what you mentioned, Dan, that the premise of this is that, there's seemingly unrelated impairments in a remote anatomical region of the body that can contribute and be associated with a patient's primary report of symptoms. That was completely ripped off of an article uh, in 2013 by Swecky, by the way. And so whenever you think about regional inter interdependence, if it helps you just to think of kinetic chain and that doing something on one part of the body can directly or indirectly have an effect on another part of the body, you're swimming in the right territory. And about how new do you think this is, Dan? How long has this line of thinking been going? Well, it depends who you're aligning yourself with in the world of physical therapy. I would say there's been some pioneers um, and, and some of the people that we've already podcasted with, uh, i.e. Greg Johnson and, and Gary Gray, who have probably been doing regional interdependence their whole career and may not have specifically called it region, regional interdependence. But my guess is the term's only been around for 10 or 15 years. Man, you're actually exactly spot on about the term. Um, the term has been actually swimming around for maybe about 20 years, but really is in 2017 where there's a big old J-O-S-P-T article in, uh, titled Regional Interdependence, a Musculoskeletal Examination Model Whose Time Has Come. And that was the authors were talking about, hey, we, this is a whole new thought process and one that's going to be 
really coming to the forefront. So really, a lot of the research has, has been around for starting about 10 years ago in which people have been calling it regional interdependence. However, whenever you look historically back on how many people have been trying to connect various areas of the body through a more allopathic medical process, one of the earliest ones was 1959. There was an orthopedist called Slocum, where we get a lot of our knee special tests. There's a Slocum special test for the knee. He published a relationship about, uh, in a picture about how he injured his foot and it decreased his effectiveness of his shoulder. So one area of the body all the way south to another area of the body all the way up north. That was 1959. I'm kind of surprised that like during that time period, like from the 50s all the way through now, there actually hasn't been more than finally in 2007, some of the authors got together and said, hey, let's actually say this is a, a, a newer approach, a new model. Let's look into it. I kind of find it in a way disheartening, but I'm kind of curious what you think of about why it's taken so long to get regional inter interdependence on the map. I mean, we were just talking with a student just a second ago, and we said, what do you know about regional interdependence? Deer in the headlights look. Why, what's taking so long, Dan? Well, as, as grateful I, as I am for our, my educational experience uh, during my doctoral program, I feel like the vast majority of our focus in that was on examination techniques and figuring out what is the PT diagnosis um, and, and talking to, and learning all the special tests and figuring out how to determine our PT diagnosis as opposed to really talking as much in depth as we should about how the body actually moves and how it interrelates. Um, you know, I know you and I went to the same school, but we only had really one semester on biomechanics. And after that, it was broken down by body part. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, then there's other there's other programs out there that break it down by um, a, a lifespan approach where they'll have, you know, a peds class and then they'll have a, a normal adult class and then they'll have a geriatrics class. Um, and so I'm, I'm guessing in those types of programs that regional interdependence is even further away, but I can't specifically speak on that because I didn't go through that type of program. Right. It, it, there's a, a fair amount of barriers in the way about where it's going. As, and I think you're right that I, I think majority of PT schools now, at least whenever we were educated, definitely teach a more biomedical model. So if you think about regional interdependence on one end of the end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum is the biomedical model. And in that model, that's where basically all your clinical decisions are predicated on the identification of that painful tissue, on that pathology, to where you say, oh, okay, a knee hurts, what's going on with the knee, rather than asking a larger question about well, why did the knee start to hurt in the first place? And so a lot of this discussion might have really good threads to the podcast that I did uh, a few months ago regarding more structuralism and functionalism. And so if you listen to that podcast, you might almost think that regional interdependence might have stronger links to motion, which in my opinion, motion and function should be fairly synonymous in the clinic, where the other structuralist one, you're just focusing on the structure that hurts. In a previous podcast, I know that Paul G. said that patients love for you to touch their pain. And so that is where you're more identifying the tissue. And so I feel like it, this is a huge, huge spectrum and whole pendulum swing that, that's, that's starting to occur. And I think in the positive direction, going from this biomedical model to this more functional, potentially functional, but definitely more motion-directed regional interdependence model. I 
feel like some of what's hard is just some people are stuck in their old ways, only thinking about the tissue that's injured. But I also think some of it is the fact that when you talk about regional interdependence, it's not only not there's not too much literature out there that supports a lot of the deep interconnectedness, but it's just confusing. Whenever you have too many parts all crammed together and you try to link them together, it becomes very confusing, even though in 1959, Slocum said, hey, there's something wrong with this guy's foot and, and it happened to the shoulder. How do you really connect the foot and the shoulder? How do you go about that? And so this is where today I'm hoping that after we go through a couple of the different connections piece by piece, you'll at least have an appreciation of the upper quarter. So hand therapists, I hope that you're out there listening. I feel like this can be right up your alley. So let's first talk about what we go for with the, when we think about the thoracic spine. Um, when we talk about regional interdependence, we just can't just talk about that only. So let's just go ahead and go another joint in which we know that we can treat the thoracic spine that it can help improve. So let's start with an easy one, cervical spine. Dan, are you, I'm sure you're aware that thoracic treatment can help cervical spine, uh, patients with cervical spine dysfunction. Are you, you are definitely aware of that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my go-to treatment strategies. Absolutely. And so I feel like whenever you, when you're going to talk about this regional interdependence, it can be sometimes confusing for a number of reasons. One, it can be confusing for the clinicians in that there's a link. And then secondly, if, if there's a link, then how do you communicate with that, that with the patient? And then number three, actually, how do you perform it? So just like you said, you know that from your schooling that there's a link between the cervical spine and the thoracic spine, that doing thoracic spine treatment can help the cervical spine. How do you explain that to a patient and why and say then when they say, you know, Dan, I have this upper cervical ache, this maybe close to a tension headache. Why in the heck are you going to my thoracic spine? How do you explain that to them? I'll go back to how the joints move and what their combined or coupled patterns look like and, and what that translates down in the thoracic spine. Um, also, I'll translate it to, let's say that patient has had a history of some sort of dizziness complaint, whether it be true BPV or something else. Um, and I'm trying to facilitate increased, let's call it left cervical rotation. I don't want that patient repeatedly moving into left cervical rotation because most likely they'll get dizzy. But I can facilitate left cervical rotation by right thoracic rotation. And it's a lot easier for somebody to see how they can move their thoracic spine to the right and facilitate left cervical rotation than it is for them to repeatedly turn into left cervical rotation. So most of the time, it's, it's, it's via demonstration purposes so they can truly see what I'm trying to achieve. Love so if I, I, love, if, I love the fact that you explain it and then you show it. I feel like in our, in our interaction with our patients, the more we can show them, the more they're going to understand. A lot of the biomechanics can be lost. However, I have picked up a couple little analogies. I'm a huge analogy guy that can help a lot of patients. So when it comes to the cervical spine and a relationship with the thoracic spine, I love to give the um, analogy of a pepper grinder. I say, okay, imagine that I'm giving you a pepper grinder. There's two ways in which you can get pepper out of this pepper grinder. You can twist the top of course, and, and hold, while holding the bottom. That twisting the top can produce, obviously, pepper. That's, I think, how the majority of people actually grind pepper. They twist the top part. But I say, but you can also hold the top and twist the bottom. That still causes the pepper to grind. That actually still makes the, the mechanics work within the pepper grinder. And that's essentially how I explain to patients. This is what we're going to be doing with your cervical spine. Instead of twisting the top part of the pepper grinder, we're going to be 
twisting the bottom part of the pepper grinder. I feel like that explanation for someone that has a lot of fear of, that has a high fear avoidance, that can actually help. That starts to put their mind at ease. They say, oh, I've used a pepper grinder. Oh, I kind of can understand how that works. Okay, I can see how my head and my thoracic spine kind of look like a pepper grinder way and how you can get motion, the same motion, by moving one segment, the top part one way and the bottom part the other way. And so that's how I like to use a verbal explanation. But in terms of demonstration, yeah, definitely showing them that. Instead of moving your chin to your right shoulder, move your shoulder to your right chin when it's fixed in front of you. That way you can show them how you can still get right rotation, whether you move from the top part or the bottom part. Yeah, and I think that, that that's a huge component right there for our listeners to truly identify. I mean, I see I see Jeff, my student, nodding his head yes, that understanding that you can move something from, if we use some Gary Gray language, from a top-down standpoint or a bottom-up standpoint, I think whether you're, no matter what you're talking about with the patient, whether it's cervical spine, lumbar spine, hip, knee, ankle, um, having that ability to take that pepper grinder analogy, you can apply that to any part of the body. You can apply that to the elbow. You can apply that to the hand um, and really understand and start to differentiate yourself as somebody who understands movement, and when you understand movement, you can help patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. So through the explanation and showing them, hopefully they'll be able to get the concept. And oftentimes, as, as ironic as it is, the more I try to explain and show people how different segments of their body are connected, they will actually start to sing a little bit of that song. They usually don't sing, but they say, oh, I guess my head bone's connected to my neck bone. My neck bone's connected to my backbone. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, it actually is. I'm, and, and I take that as a compliment. The fact that I am explaining it and in, in in something that they know, they learned in childhood that, yeah, our body is connected. And we can kind of hack our body in a way that we can move from the bottom up rather than the top down, whenever one of those motions, if the top down is painful, you get the same motion. And that's really the power behind regional interdependence. And so, all right, so do you feel like you're pretty comfortable with how the thoracic spine and cervical spine are linked and how you can explain that to a patient? Yes. Awesome. All right, so step two. Let's talk about how the thoracic spine is connected to the shoulder and how people have shoulder pain. All right, so first, this one's a little bit less known. I don't think I was educated this in PT school. Were you at all, Dan? Uh, probably not so much other than that literature that came out probably about the time that we were in PT school. We're in a grade five HVLA to the thoracic spine improved shoulder range of motion. All right. Yes. Okay. So you, I was only what a year or two ahead of you and you, you got something that I don't think I ever was educated. Everything that I've been reading about it has been after PT school. So yeah, and maybe so that those, was during residency. Okay. Well, yeah. And quite possibly. So it's something that is not as well known. And so how do we connect this in a way that makes sense first to clinicians? Well, sometimes with, whenever I talk to some clinicians, they say, where's the evidence for that? Um, there's been actually quite a, quite a number of studies that actually link doing um, thrust manipulations in actual, of the thoracic spine that reduce shoulder pain. One in 1996 that showed that 40% of patients that have shoulder pain have associated impairments of the thoracic spine in the adjacent ribs. And typically, those are hypomobile hypo segments of the thoracic spine and ribs. So doing that thrust manipulation in those people that have that tension can actually help their shoulder pain. Also, there's been a number of studies, uh, two, five other studies between 1996 and 2004 that link impairments of the thoracic spine and ribs and that show that if they have tension there, that increases that person's risk of shoulder pain. So 
there has been a, quite a bit of evidence that has linked these two together and really trying to figure out how we apply it. Well, that's step two, because once you say, okay, I can kind of maybe see through research how this is connected, how can I actually connect in my mind so I can explain it to a patient? So Dan, with your shoulder patients, do you treat the thoracic spine and or ribs much? Absolutely. Every single patient. Um, you know, I think this is something that <clears throat> you and Paul and I have tried to drive home in our treat tanks in our, in our company. And all too often when we see a patient with shoulder pathology and they come in and they have, you know, some sort of active range of motion impairment, what, what's the position that we put them in 99% of the time? We put them in supine with their legs in 90-90. Well, what does that do to their thoracic spine? It significantly limits the ability of it to move. Absolutely. And I know that's something that you've spoken passionately about within our company is, guys, you're, you're creating a lot more work for you and for the patient by limiting their thoracic spine when you're trying to do some sort of manual intervention. Absolutely. You're, and, and essentially, when you're doing that supine or even prone positioning, you're pinning them down to the floor. You're, you're pinning their trunk to the floor. They can't move it. Sure, you can move good old ball and socket pretty well, but is the scapula, are the ribs, are, is the T-spine actually moving effectively? And so I think one of the best things that I can do, so this one as a verbal explanation to patients can help, but I think the showing is more important. How I personally explain it to patients, I just say, oh, you have a stiff, well, in this case of hypomobility, you have a really stiff thoracic spine and ribs. And most of the time, whenever I'm doing my movement analysis with them, they will agree with me. They, they will say, oh yeah, I, I could not side bend. I could not rotate very well through my thoracic spine. They already know that. And I say, because of this, your shoulder is not very well positioned. And so when it moves, it causes pain. Typically I get a couple knots. Okay, that kind of makes sense. And this is where I say, okay, let me show you. And typically what I do, if their right shoulder is affected, I say, okay, do me a favor with your left shoulder. Have the worst shoulder blade posture possible. And podcast listeners, try to do this. If you're driving, just wait till you get home and try it. Take that left shoulder blade, really round it forward, really have it protract, really have it anteriorly tilt. Keep it there. Now try to flex your shoulder with that scapula in that position. How high are you able to go? Keeping it fully protracted. My student's trying right now. He's not going very far. It completely, completely limits it. So that's what I have my patients do. I say, okay, keep that shoulder blade in that position and try to raise it up. And they say, oh, that's actually uncomfortable. Oh, I can't even reach very high. And I say, okay, that's my exaggeration of how your shoulder blade is a little bit. It's a little bit forward. It's a little bit in, you know. And and so when you try to lift up your arm, that can really cause a pinching pattern. So, I mean, for the clinicians, that's, of course, some subacrobial impingement that you might be getting at. I mean, regardless, that's a motion that hurts them that we want to help rehabilitate. We want to train them out of that. And so by that, then I say, then I see patients really nod their head and say, okay, so not only did you explain this to me, now you showed it to me. Okay. Now I'm all on board because all I had to do for my left shoulder, um, my left shoulder blade, when it was forward, when I was trying to raise my arm, all I had to do was pull that left shoulder back. And all of a sudden I gained 30 degrees of elevation and, and it feels great compared to the bad position I was in. And that's usually when I say, hear patients say, oh, so you're just talking about my posture. Sure. Sure. If you want to call it that, absolutely. Let's just talk about how we get your body in the position to where your shoulder wants to work. So this is where it's easy to link by doing just that showing motion, how that thoracic spine and ribs are connected to your scapula and how that is then attached to your humerus. Once again, 
a patient might say, oh, well, I kind of knew that my shoulder bone was connected to my backbone. So yeah, I, okay, good. Right. Good. And I think that, you know, if, if I channel my inner Paul G right now, um, this is where he would talk about <clears throat> that patient that walks in that's post-op rotator cuff repair or fracture or somewhat and they're immobilized. And he'll spend the vast majority of his time, whether it's in his exercise prescription or his manual treatment, working on all the components that impact the ability of the glenohumeral joint to go into elevation or abduction. And guess where he spends 90% of his time? The thoracic spine, spine and ribs. Yep, absolutely. And, and I do the exact same thing. I mean, face it, after rotator cuff repair, who really wants to move their shoulder? Like, really? No one. I mean, they, they look at you and they say, you're absolutely crazy. And that's where you can look at them and you can say, okay, I have a deal for you. You're not even going to have to take your sling off for half of today's treatment. And we're going to get a lot of motion in. They'll say, okay, who did I go to and, and what's going on? After just a little bit of explanation and really after showing them what you're going to gift them with, with increasing the mobility of their thoracic spine and ribs, they're going to be coming right back to you. They're, you know, if they, went, if they had a next-door neighbor that got uh, physical therapy treatment after the same surgical process and he would go home and talk to his neighbor and say, hey, how's your therapy session? I guarantee you the guy that got his arm yanked on when, uh, when he was put in a, in a supine position trying to hold in-range stretches for 30 seconds, he'll say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sore, but you know, I, I think I'm going to get better. And, and your patient would be like, man, you know, I, my, my posture is already better after, after one treatment session. I can feel like I can open up my chest a little bit more. All that, all that tension that I had in my neck and my upper trap is actually reducing. I mean, my shoulder's not feeling better yet, but man, I'm loosening up. I guarantee you that next door neighbor would be like, uh, what's the name of your physical therapist? I might want to check him out. You know, that, that one actually, and when you think about it, makes more sense, but then is also the least painful route to get someone to move again. And that's the power behind regional interdependence. It's not that biomedical model. It says, okay, you have a supraspinatus tear that was two centimeters, and so we really have to be careful of avoiding these motions, and we have to really try to get this glenohumeral uh, humeral joint moving by giving the right distraction and, and the right rotation. I mean, no, that will come. That time will come. Focus on what you can move, what the patient wants you to move. They might not know they want it to move yet, but once you start moving it, they will want more and more. And so another little little soapbox that I had, something that whenever I was taught how to screen a shoulder effectively by going through flexion abduction, external rotation behind the head, internal rotation behind the back, how much does that actually move your T-spine and ribs, Dan? Ooh. Just those four pure movement movements? Yep. Probably only a few degrees. If only that. a few degrees. For the, for the first couple of years of my career, that's exactly how I screened every single shoulder patient. I, I did not even take a look at how much their spine moved. And so I feel something that my PT school did okay, they said, okay, whenever you treat a shoulder patient, make sure you look at the joint above. What was the joint above you were taught, Dan? Cervical spine. Cervical spine. Oh, how does that happen? I mean, come on, let's connect the bony anatomy here. You got scapula, you got ribs, you got thoracic spine, then you got cervical spine. So in a way, our PT school is kind of talking some regional interdependence and say, yeah, cervical spine stuff can link to shoulder stuff, but they completely missed like three joints right there. The scapula, uh, the scapulo, 
um, rib, the rib to the, the thoracic spine, and then th the thoracic spine on the cervical spine. They completely skipped over that whole entire segment, and one that is completely underutilized and something that now finally, I believe, research is showing, hey, this is a good idea. Let's move. So I almost want to go back to my school and be like, okay, really? You taught me, you taught me the cervical spine pretty well. That's that seven vertebrae. You taught me about the lumbar spine really well. We spent a lot of time on that in clinical prediction rules. And that was five vertebrae. Seven plus five is 12. How much did I learn about the thoracic spine from you? Not much. Probably not much. And so, wait, so you're telling me that I got through all of PT school education. I got through my boards and only learning about half of the spine, 12 of the 24 bones. You got to be kidding me. Thoracic spine is completely, utterly important for every single upper quarter motion. This is what this podcast is about. And even lower quarter motion, which I'm going to dabble in a little bit towards the end. All right. So, so far, Dan and then Jeff, student Jeff, I'm including you in this podcast too. Do you feel like you can now connect, at least so far, how the thoracic spine is connected to the cervical spine, as well as the thoracic spine is connected to the scapula and and glenohumeral joint. Can you see those links? Yes. And my student is nodding. Yes. All right. So now let's go even one more segment away. Let's talk about the thoracic spine and elbow. There's so uh, many hand you, therapists. You might, you might lose some people on this one. So you're going to have to talk a little slower. Okay. Well, you know, well, simply put, the elbow bones connected to the shoulder bone, the shoulder bones connected to the rib bones, the rib bones connected to the thoracic bone. That's how simple this is. So far, I've connected a couple of joints. Yes, this is one more segment away, but let's go ahead and talk about the caseflow cl clinicians. Caseflow clinicians, if you want evidence that there has even been shown ever since 1976, that was the first one that I found, that a cervical, a lower cervical spine manip, which I'm sure they might have got a little bit upper thoracic, I'll just kind of maybe plug that in. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but a manip of the spine decreased a person's tennis elbow pain, so lateral epicondylitis. That was in 76. Then things got pretty dark for a while, didn't see too much until about 2008, and that where, where it showed that pain and dysfunction at the, uh, the thoracic spine has a positive correlation with lateral elbow pain. Okay, so a little bit of those dark years. And then a more recent one, just last year, showed that there's a weakness in scapular muscles is seen in individuals with lateral epicondylitis. So there is research emerging that says there's something fishy going on with the scapula that might be related to lateral epicondylitis, or at the very least, lateral epicondylitis might be causing some issues at the thoracic spine. I feel like that link is there. I don't think people from research really know, but that there is a link one to the other. They can't say one causes the other or one or the other causes it, but regardless, there is a link there. So this comes back to the rotator cuff um, example that we gave. When someone comes in with a lot of pain, do you really want to move that segment? Is it good to move that segment? Well, with lateral epicondylitis, it's commonly known as an overuse injury anyways. Is that something that you want to say, okay, here's a muscle group, the common extensor tendons. Let's go ahead and work their tail off and, and cause them to use more. I mean, I think some patients, if they were wise enough, they, they would look at that kind of treatment and be like, okay, you just got done telling me this tennis elbow is an overuse injury but you're having me use it by, by doing isolated wrist extension exercises with a TheraBand or, or, or a dumbbell. Are you sure you want me to do that? Or shouldn't, if this is over you, should I use something else? And that's where regional interdependence comes in. Yes. Use something else. 
Yeah, and I think that's a great point. That that's something that I caught during res- residency. Um, Dr. Terry Grindstaff came to Creighton from the University of Virginia, and he worked with a lot of overhead athletes, and and then interestingly enough, worked with their crew team. One of the things he tried to stress to myself and our fellow residents was the impact that the thoracic spine had on his overhead athletes as well as his crew individuals. Because if I remember correctly, now it was a few years ago, a lot of his crew athletes were getting elbow injuries. And if I think about what they do in crew, that probably makes sense. Um, And if you've ever treated an individual that is in crew, they've got huge monstrous legs and they've got huge monstrous forearms. Well... When they started to move their thoracic spine and train their thoracic spine, mainly in the transverse plane, all of a sudden these issues started to go bye-bye. Speaking about his his pitchers, when he started to train their thoracic spine, all of a sudden their velocity increased and their medial elbow pain tended to decrease because they started to rotate through their thoracic spine first and even though we know that, you know, through some studies that there's a there's a fairly big Newton meter force through the through the UCL, um, some say up to 100 Newton meters, which that's a pretty big force. Well, wouldn't we rather have our thoracic spine controlling some of that as opposed to our little tiny UCL? Um, so that connection between thoracic spine and both medial and lateral elbow pain is clearly there. And I can tell you numerous times when the patients come to me from another clinic outside of outside of our company and been like, yeah, you know, they didn't, my, my elbow pain's still there. I still can't throw a ball or I still can't hit a tennis ball or I can't row. And guess what they never did? <laughs> Move their thoracic spine. All they did was localized treatment. Well, yeah. They went through that biomedical approach. Oh, must be your elbow that hurts. So let's just do elbow things. Yep. And, and, and so I go ahead. I hope podcast listeners that, that you're drawing not only the link that there's those couple studies that I mentioned that show that there's a link between elbow pain, medial lateral, as well as scapulothoracic issues. So there's evidence for that. And so not only do you have evidence, but then you also have some clinical experience from people that actually dabble with that. So not only an expert working with high-end athletes, but then you also have someone like Dan that has a lot of clinical experience that says it works. And you have a guy like me that says it works. But if you can't take our words for it and the research word for it, and because you can't explain it to a patient, let's let's talk about how we can explain this to a patient. I feel like for me, just like some of these other little movement things that I've shown you, moving them will make their eyes wide open about what's going on. If I had just had to talk to them because they have a lot of fear avoidance, I would say, okay, whenever you do a backhand, so we'll talk about this if I saw someone with lateral epicondylitis. When you're doing a backhand, so right-handed tennis player, you're performing your backhand swing. Whenever you get at the very end range, you have to twist your whole body to the left. Your shoulder comes across your body and your elbow bends and your wrist bends backwards. So a little bit of elbow flexion, a little bit of wrist flexion. That's the ultimate dialing up motion of a backhand in tennis, where the namesake lateral epicondylitis comes from, tennis elbow. And I say, okay, so now, now that you saw me do that, so podcast listeners, if you're sitting down, stand up, take your right hand, stick it about shoulder height, rotate it all the way to the left as far as you can so you're reaching at shoulder height all the way back behind you. 
So right hand, left rotational reach at shoulder height. Feel that. Okay, next, don't move your thoracic spine at all and try to reach your racket or your hand to the same position. What you will find in order to get your hand all the way back behind you where you, where you were the last time, you're going to have to really horizontally adduct your shoulder to maximum end range, which that's not good for a shoulder issue. Then you have to bend your elbow nearly 90 degrees or further to reach that point. And then you're going to have to reach your wrist with your wrist flexion to the maximum end range to even get close to the territory you were just in when you're moving your thoracic spine as well as your hips. And then add a little bit of a load by the weight of the racket on that end and now see what happens to that small, tiny musculature group. Absolutely. And it is so easy to reproduce their pain with that. Patients, in a weird way, do like you to touch their pain. So I don't like to do it too much, especially for overuse injuries, but I will do exactly that. I will say, okay, take that racket, or let's take a one pound weight if you don't have a racket in, in your clinic. Let's do that right, ro- uh, let's do that left rotational reach with that right hand to the end range of motion using everything you've got hips and T spine. Then just do it by just moving just your shoulder and elbow and wrist. I guarantee you, they, well, all my patients that I've done this to, they hurt at their lateral epicondyle a whole lot more, one versus the other. You have just shown to them, yeah, okay, that indeed, your elbow bones connect to your shoulder bone, shoulder bones connected to your ribs and your T-spine. And this is where I get that comment the most where they say, oh, I guess it is. everything is kind of connected. Well, good. I'm glad that you're realizing that. I'm glad I was able to show you that. Now, when you go home, you'll realize why I'm giving you a lot of stuff with your chest and not really that much with your elbow. Because that's where I feel like I've had some drop off with patients whenever I don't show them well enough where what I'm trying to do. Sometimes I hop to regional interdependence kind of principles really quickly because they fit the mold really quickly, but I have not done a good job of educating them why. Some of them come back and, you know, I'm sure they go home and be like, okay, things kind of made sense when I was in the clinic and why I was moving it. But for my exercise, he's not doing anything with my elbow. My spouse is even looking at me and says, why are you doing this kind of chest twisty stuff? Didn't you hurt your elbow? Like, are you sure that your physical therapist knows what part of the body you're working on? Taking literally 60 seconds, showing your patients how moving other segments of their body can help reduce their pain in the clinic is empowering. Then your patient will be your advocate and say to their spouse, well, actually, well, check this out. If, if I do it like this, it really hurts. But when I do it like this, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. And then the spouse might, might say, well, I've actually had a little bit of pain somewhere else. Maybe I can learn to cheat a little bit to offload that segment. And that's really what regional interdependence is about. It's about redistributing forces along different parts of the, the kinetic chain that should maybe be doing it or I haven't been doing it in years and yet you have to retrain on doing it or just they might have the physical ability to do that. All they need is just a couple of proprioceptive clues, some neuroread, which that was a great podcast you guys did um, the last time about just showing how they can move their body through a new motion to where their symptoms are less prevalent. Yeah, I think those are some awesome points that you brought up that are very clinically applicable immediately for therapists. Um, and then, you know, you're going to get the question of, well, now what do I do that I figured out that they have decreased thoracic spine motion and, you know, then, then that's where you got to get creative and say, okay, how can I, how can I increase thoracic spine mobility in a fun, creative way that doesn't seem like it's repetitive, super repetitive in nature, but also then train it in that new range of motion. So that goes back to 
our discussion of mobility versus stability, structure versus function, neuromuscular re-ed, this. I mean, I, I hope our listeners see that there is some thought behind why we're doing what we're doing in our podcasts and um, that it's not just a random collection of topics, that there is somewhat of a stepwise and logical progression of what we're doing. Um, and, you know, the other thing I really want to point out to our listeners is Andrew talked about understanding literature and being evidence-informed. Um, he's not saying that he's taking that literature and applying it to every single one of his patients. He understands that literature and is using that in a snippet to guide his education of the patient, not to necessarily treat the patient. So, you know, he, he understands it. He read it. He's researched it. But it isn't the only thing that he's using to, to practice. And that's not the only way that he's going about treating a patient. So yeah. I, I really appreciate that, Andrew. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for, for saying that, because I, I do agree to one point. You have to have some confidence on, on, knowing what, on, on trusting what your eyes see and when someone moves and to trust that gut instinct. When something doesn't look right, likely some things aren't moving right. And oftentimes the things that aren't moving right really are not directly linked. I mean, it's not the structure that actually hurts. So that's someone's spine that doesn't move. Yeah, they might have a little bit of, of lateral elbow pain or shoulder pain or neck pain. Can we treat that? And so it's having the confidence of trusting your eyes. But I also believe, especially when it comes to regional interdependence, when the research isn't out there yet, and while having a super pure algorithmic way of treating someone is not there, nor do I think it'll ever be there. But I believe that clinicians have to have a certain amount of humility to realize that we really don't know how things are all interconnected. But to appreciate that, yes, indeed, our patients know even at the basic level, just like the song, I won't sing it again for you but that they know things are interconnected. And even though we, we don't know how things are interconnected, we can't just sit there and focus with the biomedical model and focusing on just this injured site. We have to look bigger than that. Spend less time looking at the trees and have an appreciation of the forest. Yeah, no, I think that that's awesome. Um, you know, it looks like we're running a little long on our normal time, but that's okay because I feel like we had some really great discussion and, and some great clinical pearls for, for our, uh, for our listeners. Um, you know, so thanks Andrew for joining us and, and hopefully our listeners can appreciate everything that we talked about today and start to apply that to their patients. Um, you know, as always, if you have any questions or additional feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at therapists in motion at spoonerpt.com. Um, you know, with our new exciting, uh, equipment. We have the ability to do phone in conversations like we did here today with Andrew and have a few more planned down the road. And so um, hopefully with some feedback from you all and, and, and that's good stuff, we can continue to have uh, phone conversations and record this at a high level for our listeners. Um, Andrew, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, I love this stuff and I look forward to having more in the future with you. Hey, thank you, Dan. All right. Signing off. <laughs>